The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, hey, I asked Brian to read number 17 because per our, you know, sort of preset uh, preaching schedule that we, we came up with, we're taking up all of chapter 16 through 18 this morning, but really, that's a lot. And so what I want to do is focus in on number 16 and then kind of summarize and show you how chapter 17 and 18 relate and, and fit. It's all one unit. Um, but understanding chapter 16 is key, and so we're, we're going to spend most of our time um, right and all of our attention there. So uh, here's the question that we're faced with by these, by these three chapters. Um, who can approach a holy God, and how? We, we live in a society now where, according to a Gallup poll from this past summer, 33% of Americans, um, they, they consider themselves spiritual but not religious. Um, it, one of my seminary professors, you know, 15, 20 years ago, called it Burger King religion. All right, have it your way, right? Um, it, it's a thinking that, that tends in the direction of, of saying uh, there's many paths to God, actually. Um, or the, the, the thinking that goes like this, uh, I like to think of God as fill in the blank, and then we fill in the blank. Uh, do you know what the problem is with that way of thinking? The Bible. The Bible. See, through the Bible, God's holy word, that's what we believe around here, God reveals himself to us. We don't get to think of God as however we want to. No, he he tells us who he is. In fact, the only way that we know anything about God is through his holy word. And so we can't pick and choose what we want from God's word. We've got to take all of it. Either it's his holy word or it's not. And if it's not, we got nothing. We got nothing to go on. We don't get to think of God as however we want. He tells us who He is. Scripture also teaches very clearly there's not many paths to God. There's one. Jesus. He's the way and the truth and the life. And no one gets to the Father but through Him. The Bible teaches us that the Christian faith is not a have-it-your-own-way faith, which ends up being really a violation of the second commandment, where we fashion a God who behaves as we want Him to behave, actually how we dictate that He behave. Spiritual, not religious, He can, can very easily be a way of saying, I'm going to figure, I'm going to figure out God on my own. I'm just going to, He'll be who I want Him to be. But Christianity is not a, Choose your own adventure story. All right, it's, it's not a buffet where we get to take the parts that we like. You know, most of the morality, um, you know, Jesus is an example. But then pass over the parts that don't suit our taste, like sin and judgment, and the parts of biblical morality that don't line up with, with our morality. Church, God is holy. 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 More holy than we can ever get our minds around. And we are to relate to Him with reverence and awe and submission and humility. We can't just relate to Him however we want. He's specific in how we relate to Him. Let me put it another way. He's the one who DTRs the relationship. Not us. And specifically, as it relates to these chapters today, He's the one who determines... Who can approach him and how? 
And so if you, if you like to think of God as an all-welcoming, you know, an all-welcoming God who anyone can approach at any time, in any way, these chapters here in Holy Scripture are going to challenge you. Now this morning is going to be one part teaching you how to read the Bible and, and one part sermon. I hope that's going to be helpful to you. If you've ever read a story in the Old Testament and um, you've gotten done with you got to the end of the story and you go, okay, interesting. What am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> right? If you've ever wondered, like, how, what, what does this have to do with my life? How do I apply it to my life? Hopefully this morning, how we're going to talk about this, will be helpful. The, the, the book of Numbers is a part of what we call the Pentateuch. All right? Um, it's the, the first five, Penta, that's where that n- name comes from, the first five books of the Bible that largely trace the early history of God's Old Testament people, all the way back from the garden and creation with Adam and Eve, all the way up to the, the brink of the promised land, at the end of Deuteronomy, right? And, and within the book of Numbers, there's generally two text types, narrative and discourse, a little technical here for you, um, but there's, there's actually both in our chapter today, but the narrative is what carries the story forward. And when I say narrative, think story, but not like a, a random story told around a fire pit where everybody chuckled, haha. you know, it doesn't really matter what order you tell everything in as long as you get the punchline right. No, we believe that God's word is inspired and inerrant. Not just in word, but in composition. What that means is it's carefully crafted. There's a divine structure to it. In the case of narrative, very often it's crafted with a structure like this. Can we put that up on the screen? Do you like, if you're like, dang, who drew that? That was me. (laughs) Took me about four hours this week to get that line just right. It was really tricky. You had to go into the line settings even and change the line type. That's and bump up the the sides of the line even. That's next level stuff there for you. Um, listen, it, it's very often the case of narrative. It's, it's structured like this, where you begin with a setting, a description of of how things are, what's going on. Um, then that's followed with some sort of conflict or rising action, which eventually comes to a climax and then some resolution, and then a new setting. Um, and understanding that God's word, narrative portions anyway, are often structured like this is helpful because seeing the structure is what reveals the climax. And um, climax of the story is actually what reveals the emphasis of the story. And emphasis reveals what we ought to be honing in on, lest we get distracted with the details of the story or even biblical sub-themes of the story and miss the point of the story in applying it to our lives. Now, number 16, this structure up here, it actually happens twice. You're like, oh boy. Uh, but yeah, it does. And then chapter 17 and 18 can be viewed as a part of that second new setting. That's not the only way to look at chapter 17 and 18. We could certainly take those two kind of fully on their own. There's another story arc in chapter 17, actually. But this morning, what I want you to see is how 17 and 18 fit and relate to chapter 16. So we're just going to kind of walk through the text first. I hope you got your Bibles with you. You're going to need those. Um, open up to Numbers chapter 16. Some of this will be on the screen, but not all of it. Okay, if we're gonna, if we're gonna say that God's word is holy, we should carry it around with us, especially when we're at church and open it up and get into it. If you don't have a copy of God's word, um, grab one of those black pew Bibles in front of you and you'll be on page 124. Um, we're just gonna walk through this text and we're gonna identify the climaxes, take a look at the emphases and apply it all to our life. Ready for that? Alright, the initial set, this is a great story by the way, chapter 16, holy moly. Uh, the initial setting, verses 1 through 15, this is what's famously known as Korah's Rebellion. 
Korah's rebellion. Let me just read this section first, commenting as we go through. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. There's an uprising happening here, right? Led by Korah, who, if you trace it out, actually, he is Moses and Aaron's cousin. Izhar, Korah's, uh, Korah's father, was the brother of Amram, Moses and Aaron's father. So they were all Levites. And so we've got a little family rivalry thing going on here with Korah. And then in addition to Korah, we have Dathan and Abiram, who were not Levites. They were from the line of Reuben. These three together, they are the primary culprits. All right? On is named two. Um, but only here. Maybe he turned back. We're not sure. We don't hear about On for the rest of the story. It focuses in on Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, these three guys. They rose up, verse 2, they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. So we got all the, we got the influencers on their side, right? And they were chosen actually by the congregation. That's how we know they're the influencers. We, they, people said, hey, these are the ones who we want to go and represent us. Verse three, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy. Every one of them and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves against uh, above the assembly of the Lord? That's what they said. Now, we've got to sort out some truth here, right? Um, look at their accusation. First, they assert, you have gone too far, Moses and Aaron. They're upset with their leadership. Right? They, they, they don't like to have anyone over them telling them what to do. Submission is not their forte. Then they assert that the whole congregation is holy. Interesting. Now, in one sense, that's true. Um, They're set apart by God, all of them, as God's people. But in another sense, they are completely unholy. They keep sinning and, and, and forgetting to trust in God over and over in numbers. That's why after a chapter on grace, chapter 15, it ended with a, a command to be holy. Remember? But really, what's at the heart of their complaint is that they think that Moses and Aaron have set themselves up above the rest. That they've self-appointed themselves and are thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. Now that is simply untrue if you've read the Bible. Moses was a very reluctant leader. Remember back in the early chapters of Exodus, maybe he was called by God in the early chapters of Exodus to lead his people and he didn't really, he wasn't a big fan of that calling. In Exodus 28, God appointed Aaron. God appointed Aaron. Aaron didn't say, he didn't interview for the job, all right? Uh, God appointed Aaron and his sons to be set apart as priests. They didn't set themselves up. God appointed them. And if we jump down to verse 10, actually, in chapter 16, we, we see really what Korah and his rebellion are saying is, you're not special, we can approach God too. They wanted to be priests. They wanted full, unrestricted access to God. They thought Moses and Aaron were hogging the access here. Verse 4, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Moses is starting to learn some things throughout the book of Numbers. He understands that the people aren't rebelling against him, but against God. And that's not a good thing. It hasn't been a good thing so far, has it? And so he hits the deck. I mean, this is almost like a duck and cover, right? 
Verse 5, he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. And so do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. This is Moses saying, uh, you want to be priests? <laughs> tomorrow we'll give it a try. Moses is he's turning them over to their own sinful and rebellious desires. Get you a censer. Probably a lantern looking thing. Um, you put your incense in. If you've ever gone to like a Catholic funeral, you've seen the priest like holding this incense thing and, and you know, doing the incense dealing. Um, get you some censers, he says, and I'll see you tomorrow. And did you notice the back and forth in verse 3, Korah and the people and their accusation, they shout at Moses and Aaron, You've gone too far! And Moses in his response in verse 7, You've gone too far. Verse 8, Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation and minister to them? That he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? Would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered. It was Aaron that you grumble against him. Moses is saying to, to Korah, again from the family of Kohath, you've already got a high calling from God. Back in chapter 4, they were the ones who were responsible for the most holy things the, uh, within the ark and in the tabernacle. Remember when they're going to pack it all up? These are the ones who are going to carry the most holy things. God had given them a special calling and he had actually already drawn them near. But as a family from Levi's lineage, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, the Merahites, they all had special duties. The Kohathites being the most special of all three. They were, they were camped closest to the tabernacle, these three tribes, where God had brought them near. He had put a special calling on them, but it wasn't enough. They were discontent with their God-given calling and station, and in their jealousy, they wanted more. We could, that would preach, right? But I don't think it's the main point. They wanted access. They wanted to be like Aaron. They wanted full access to God. They wanted to be priests. See, in this day, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Only Aaron and his sons were the priests. They had special duties. But Aaron and his sons had the most special duties. They had been set apart for the holiest of duties approaching God inside the tabernacle. And then even within the priestly structures, only Aaron could enter into the Holy of Holies. And Kor and his crew, they wanted that. They wanted God on their terms, and they think that they can have it. They like to think of God as a welcoming God who anyone can approach at any time, namely themselves. Verse 12, Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. And they said, we're not coming to talk to you. Is it a small thing? They're kind of mocking him. Remember back in verse 8, God says to, or Moses says to Korah, you know, is it a small thing that God has separated you and, and put you in this spot? And they said, is it a small thing that you brought us up out of Egypt? 
small thing that you brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey? That's a head-scratcher. To kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. So, Nathan and Abiram refused Moses' call, which is ultimately refusal of God. That's what verse 11 said. And their rejection of God's appointed leaders, they're rejecting God. And notice their skewed vision of the past. They actually refer to Egypt... Not as a land of slave labor and them making bricks without straw, but a land flowing with milk and honey. It was not. And they complained that they'd been let out here to die. And that Moses and Aaron had overpromised and are underdelivering. And that part that part about putting out the eyes is their way of saying, Hey, we're not blind to what's really going on here. You may have tricked everyone else into blindly following you, Moses and Aaron. But we see through it all now. So we're not coming. We're not coming to talk to you. Verse 15, Moses was angry. Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them. I have not harmed one of them. And then Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron, tomorrow. It was a showdown. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring it before the Lord, his censer, 250 censers. You also... And Aaron, each with a censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the, tent, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. This is, we're into the rising action here now. All right, the, the conflict is escalating. The glory of the Lord has shown up. The stage is set. They're at the entrance of the tent of meeting, all 250 with their censers, and also Aaron with his. The glory of the Lord has appeared. In other words, get ready. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Translation, God's about to wipe everyone out except for Moses and Aaron. And they, Moses and Aaron, fell on their faces and said, Oh God, the God of the Spirit of all flesh, shall one man sin and you'll be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So this is Moses and Aaron interceding once again for the people. They ask God for an opportunity for the people to break ranks with Korah and Dathan and Abiram. To distance themselves from the rebellion. In a sense, to repent. To, to turn back from following the rebellion and turn back instead to trusting God. And the Lord responds graciously, doesn't He? Say to them, get away from them. Get away from Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And then Moses rose and he went to Dathan and Abiram and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart, please. Get away from them, from their tents of these wicked men and touching nothing that's theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. And so they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. That it has not been of my own accord. 
If these men die as all men die, natural causes or something like that, or if they are visited by a fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth, swallows them up, and all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, the place of the dead, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Now we've reached the climax. Verses 31 through 35. As soon as he had finished speaking these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished in the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth shall swallow us up. It's them running away saying, we're all going to (laughs) die. Meanwhile, back at the entrance of the tent of meeting, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. God's judgment. And now the new setting, verses 36 through 40. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze, pick up all the censers that are left, and scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, for they offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. And so Eleazar, the priest, took the bronze censers, which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses. So, we've got the censers, the 250 who were consumed by fire. They're hammered into a covering for the altar. That's to serve as a visual reminder to Israel that not just anyone can approach this holy God. Only his chosen and anointed one, Aaron, and his sons to follow. Now, after all that, <laughs> you would think that this, this new setting, okay, on this side, all that fire coming out and consuming 250 of them, uh, the ground opening up and swallowing families alive, right? You would think that this new setting with the, the cover for the altar as a reminder would bring the issue of Moses and Aaron's appointed leadership and their special position as God's anointed leaders to an end. It doesn't. Instead, verse 41, on the very next day, all of the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and grumbled against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Here we go again. This is the new setting, very much like the old setting. This time, all the congregation are grumbling against Moses and Aaron, lofting false accusations upon them. You did this. They're not picking up what God's putting down, are they? They refuse to see what just happened as an act of God's divine judgment. They refuse to be humbled by the wrath of God, which has just been revealed. Perhaps they don't like to think of God as a God of judgment and wrath. 
So they aimed their grumbling at Moses and Aaron instead. This is all your fault, they said. When the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, verse 42, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared again. Rising action again, right? Just like back in verse 19, the first time around. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of the meeting, verse 44. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Sound familiar? They fell on their faces again. Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put fire on it from the altar lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for wrath has gone out from the Lord and the plague has already begun. We've reached the second climax. We know it's the climax because if the story broke off right here, we'd be left with quite the cliffhanger, right? What's going to happen? So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly, and behold, the plague had already begun among the people, and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. What a scene. I mean, can you picture this? The plague is spreading. People are, are dying. They're like, they're falling over. They're dying. I went to the Husker football game yesterday. They didn't do the wave yesterday because there wasn't anything to wave about, right? Um, but if they had, you can picture the wave, right? Everyone's up, arms up. They're alive. And it's going around and it's going around. And then they're, they're dead and all the arms go down. It would look like that. And Aaron runs right out into that offering atonement and it stops. It stops with him. He stands between the living and the dead. Atonement stands between the living and the dead. Atonement offered by God's chosen, anointed, Holy One. His Holy One. Then we've got the new setting in verses 49 through 50. Those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the tent of meeting when the plague had stopped. I would have loved to hear that conversation. This new setting carries forward into chapter 17 and 18 then. Chapter 17, as we heard read earlier, is this story of Aaron's staff budding in the tabernacle. It's an interesting story. It's a miraculous story. And in summary, it's a visual depiction of God's stamp of approval, His public vindication of Aaron as high priest, the one who can draw near. This was God's move to settle the issue once and for all. Chapter 17, verse 5 says, And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout, and it did. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. This will shut them up, is what God says, basically. He's a little more PC than that. And of course, all the staffs are taken into that tent of testimony. The next day, Aaron's um, it had not just sprouted, like, oh, that... Maybe that could have happened overnight. I don't know. You know, staffs do weird things sometimes, apparently. Um, no, it didn't just sprout. It put forth buds and produced blossoms. And it didn't just put forth buds and produce blossoms. It, God went so far as to have it bear ripe almonds overnight. Just in case there was any question. 
a miracle of God's mark of vindication upon his chosen, appointed, holy one. And yet, instead of being a comfort to God's people, seeing this budded staff of Aaron's, it seems to put him in a panic instead. At the end of 17, the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We're all undone. We're all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of God is going to die. We're all going to die. So we see God's people, with a a renewed reverence and and fear of, of God and awe of God, they've realized they are not holy and cannot draw near to this holy God. And yet also they've got a panic stricken fear of God. They failed to realize that this holy God whom they couldn't approach had, by His grace, established a means by which they could in and through Aaron's priesthood. The priesthood that existed for the sake of protecting the community. The same priesthood that was to camp around the tabernacle providing a buffer of protection against the people encroaching upon the powerful presence of God. The same priesthood that was to offer sacrifices for the people, making atonement for the people, just like Aaron had with the plague. Reconciling them with the holy God. This then is what chapter 18 is all about. It's God reiterating the duties of the priests and the Levites and how also the plan, once they enter the promised land, for how the priests and the Levites will be provided for. In other words, the people don't have to fear the holiness of God in a panic-stricken way. God had made a way. For the people to draw near. And it's going to continue all the way into the promised land. But they can't do it straight away on their own. They must approach through the priest. His chosen, anointed, holy one. Now if you were just reading that on Tuesday morning. In your living room. You get to the end of chapter 18. You might go, okay. Interesting. What are we going to have for breakfast, you know? What are we going to do with all this? Well, remember, structure reveals climax. Climax reveals emphasis. And emphasis reveals what we ought to be honing in on and applying to our lives. How might we summarize the two climaxes? Well, in the first story arc, the climax comes with judgment and wrath upon a rebellious people. The earth swallows up Dathan, the Byram, and their families. The fire of the Lord consumes the 250. What was the rebellion about? It was over who could approach God. They thought anyone could. They were wrong. Suffered the wrath of God. And then, how might we summarize the second climax? Atonement for the rebellious people. The rebellious people who are otherwise rejecting God's called, appointed, and holy one, Aaron, the high priest. Wrath and atonement, then, are the emphases of this long passage. Judgment and wrath towards those who reject the high priest. Atonement for those who are saved by him, saved by God's chosen, appointed, holy one. Now remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 when he's talking about the book of Numbers? He says, these things were written down for us. To benefit us as Christians. This isn't just a nice old Bible story that's used to like scare you into fear in the Lord or something like that. It's a truth which happened, which was written down for our edification. How does it edify? Well, remember also that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. 
How does number 16 point us forward to Jesus? By teaching us something about wrath and something about atonement. That's how. You see, last week in chapter 15, atonement was associated with forgiveness. Do you remember that? Remember the business about the unintentional sins and how you could come and, and, and give an offering to the priest. He could offer it on the altar and make atonement and you'd be forgiven. This week in chapter 16, the notion of atonement is extended beyond forgiveness to show that atonement is also about stopping God's judgment and therefore turning away his deserved wrath. See, you and I, apart from Jesus, we're like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. We're not Moses and Aaron in the story. (laughs) We're like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Rebellious ones who cannot approach God on our own. We cannot draw near apart from Christ. And in our rebellion, what we deserve is nothing less than God's judgment and wrath. Swallowed up into hell and consumed by fire, to put it bluntly. And biblically. That's what everyone everywhere deserves and will receive apart from Jesus. And there's just no way to sugarcoat that. You know, like, I I can't put that, I can't, like, I can't spin that in some way that, like, lessens the, the blow of it. And not everyone wants to hear it. Listen, ignoring it doesn't make it untrue. Scoffing at it doesn't make it untrue. Mocking those who believe it doesn't make it untrue. Downplaying it doesn't make it untrue. Rejecting it as religion while seeking to hold on to being spiritual doesn't make it untrue. Preferring to not think of God as a God of judgment and wrath doesn't make it untrue. Nothing will ever make it untrue because it's straight from the word of God. Our God, we, we, we lose this in American evangelicalism, right? But our God is a consuming fire. He's holy. We cannot approach Him on our own because we cannot be reconciled to Him on our own because we're the problem. We're the rebels. The sinful ones who reject God and prefer to come up with our own ideas about God to have it our way. The ones who grumble in discontentment over our God-given station and calling in life who act in jealousy and pride and think we're holier than we are. We think we can come to God however we want. Sometimes even extremely flippant about our sin. I'm talking to Christians. <laughs> that doesn't fly, God says. We don't get to define the relationship. He does. He sets the rules. He defines sin. He judges us, not the other way around. And when we hear all that, listen, it ought to evoke a little bit of a response in us like it does in the Israelites at the end of chapter 17. Behold, we perish. We're all undone. We're all going to die. Everyone who draws near is going to die. Until we realize, just like the Old Testament Israelites in our passage were to realize, that God has made a way. Through His chosen, appointed, holy one. The greater and fuller and more perfect Aaron, the great high priest, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
The one who comes and makes atonement. Who literally stands between the living and the dead and stops the plague of sin and death coming for us. And he doesn't just turn away the wrath of God. He doesn't just divert it a little bit, point it over here somewhere else. No, he takes it all on himself on the cross. He bore your iniquity, to use a phrase straight out of Numbers 18. All the judgment, all the wrath that you deserved for your rebellious and sinful heart, Jesus took it all on himself on the cross. He's your, here's the big word, propitiation, your wrath bearer. He makes atonement for you, not merely forgiving you, but taking away, taking on himself the wrath that you rightfully deserve. Isn't that incredible? Church, he's the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father but through him. And anyone who tells you otherwise is like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram assembling followers for a self-induced eternal holocaust. But when you trust in Jesus, he becomes your eternal high priest. Listen to how the author of Hebrews in the New Testament talks about Jesus in this way. He says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He also says in another place, you're a priest forever. The point is, Jesus is our eternal high priest. He's... He's the priest that ends all priests. He didn't appoint himself. He didn't exalt himself any more than Aaron exalted himself. No, he is God's chosen, appointed, and holy one. The one who's been publicly vindicated. Like the staff of Aaron. Through his miraculous resurrection from the dead. Put on display through his appearing. Who, like the staff, has been placed into the Holy of Holies. The heavenly Holy of Holies. He's ascended into heaven where he sits at God's right hand on a throne. Church, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Oh, let us hold fast to our confession. Our confession that says, we were rebels. We deserve wrath. But Jesus is Lord. Jesus atones for us. And through his atonement, we are invited to draw near. Can you believe that? What the rebellious Old Testament Israelites wandering in the wilderness were jealously coveting has been generously granted to us in Christ. For there's one God, one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus our Lord. And so let us with confidence, the writer of Hebrews says, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help In our time of need. Who can approach a holy God? You and me. You and me, church. 
anytime we want, anytime we need. On our good days and our worst ones too. On the brightest points of our life and in the darkest days of our life. When suffering comes, when when you are overwhelmed with confusion, when you've got questions, doubts even, when there's fear and anxiety in your life or just a numbness, when you're killing it and just want to draw near to praise Him, but also when you sin and fail, And feel like a disappointment to yourself and Jesus and everybody else around you. Let us with confidence, not head hanging low, not shoulders slumped down, not quivering or quaking or cowering, with confidence, draw near. Draw near to Him, to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. Who can draw near to this holy God? You and I. How? Only through Christ. Only through Jesus. And by trusting in Jesus. And not some vague Jesus. The biblical Jesus. The real Jesus. Trusting in Jesus to be your atonement, to offer you forgiveness and propitiation by His death on the cross, miraculously raised again, publicly vindicated by God, ascended and seated on that throne which He just invited you to draw near to. That Jesus. Let's pray and give thanks to Him. Father, Father, we really are rebels if left to ourselves. We really are cut off from you and deserving of your wrath. And and because of Jesus, we don't have to pretend like that's not true. Because of Jesus, we don't have to prefer to think of you as anything other than what you've already revealed yourself to be. Thank you for Jesus. Your chosen anointed and holy one. Thank you for sending him to make atonement for us once and for all. Would you help everyone in this room trust in him, perhaps even for the first time, for real, today. And through Jesus, would you help us hear your generous invitation to draw near to you in close, intimate, personal communion with you, even right here and right now. We pray this in the vindicated name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.